Hello, and welcome to the Made to Lead podcast, a show where we tell the personal and professional stories of amazing people of African descent who are leading in their own way. I'm your host, Aziz Garuba, and on each episode, I interview a dynamic individual and discuss their achievements, challenges, dreams, and aspirations, and the lessons they've learned along the way. These candid conversations are meant to showcase their superb talents and leadership philosophies with the hope that inspires you, because you were also made to lead. If you're listening for the first time, I encourage you to subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Made to Lead Show. Also visit our website, madetolead.co, for more information about each episode. All right, thanks for joining us on another episode of Made to Lead. And today I'm very excited to have on the show Amoye Henry. So she is she's a rock star millennial entrepreneur and small business consultant. Um, and she's on, she's on a mission to help scale and grow uh, businesses led by unique founders. So basically, according to her, she wants to see the underdog win. Uh, so Amoya has uh, also been named one of Canada's top 100 accomplished black women. She was given that award and title back in 2018. Uh, and she's been working on building strong brand partnerships. And that has allowed her to secure approximately $3.4 million in funding for local entrepreneurs, startups, uh, and community organizations. Uh, she's also the co-founder of Pitch Better, which is a startup that trains entrepreneurs to build and scale sustainable small businesses. And she's focused on a mandate of creating more women millionaires. And that's what Pitch Better is designed to do. Uh, and they've coached over 100 entrepreneurs and 50% of those uh, can now employ other people, which is amazing. Uh, and in addition to this, she's also the co-founder and executive producer of the Afro Chic Cultural Arts Festival, which she started back in 2010. And since then, it's created opportunities for over 350 local and international artists, entrepreneurs, and cultural practitioners. And she's advocated for the broader Canadian society to embrace, recognize, and respect the cultural and historical contributions of people of African descent and, and bringing those communities together. Now, AfroChic is, is a, a global entity, and it's produced content both in Canada, the United States, and West Africa. Uh, so Amoya also recently joined uh, the executive MBA program at Ivy School of Business, and she's on track to graduate in June 2021. And she also happens to be one of the youngest and, and only diverse students uh, in the program. So Amoya, thanks so much for joining us today. I really appreci appreciate your time, and I'm looking forward to a great conversation. I'm so honored to be invited onto this podcast. I saw it, and I was quite honestly floored um at how you know just top class high class this was and i'm just i'm truly honored that you would give me the opportunity so awesome. looking forward to having our discussion tonight cool cool so so let's let's get uh right into things uh let's talk about who you are right who's who's the woman behind afro chic who's amoye um where's she from and how did she get to this point in life well, um, thank you so much for going over my bio. I, I feel like I'm a, um, as you know, as self-described rock star millennial, but I'm also, um, obviously a human becoming and a work in progress. So yes, I'm a human being, but I'm also a human becoming because I'm just on this journey to self-actualize and, you know, materialize all the things that I think, um, I've been predestined to. 
Um, I'm really interested in uh, working at the intersectionalities of um, community, community development, business development, and personal development. Um, I believe that these things all work um, hand in hand to create a wholesome existence for, for people. So I'm, you know, very much invested in my community, my people. I'm invested in the world that makes things happen um, under the currents of, you know, things that we may not necessarily all see. Um, but, you know, that's a very important uh, uh space that I, that I strive to be in, um, to have access to the, to the things that a lot of people don't have access to. So I can understand how to create more access. That makes any sense. Um, I am a woman of Caribbean parentage. I am from Jamaica. I live in the beautiful city of Toronto. That is, you know, the world in a city. Um, I love, culture. I love food. I love listening to people and truly hearing people. Um, I love to travel. I love to learn. I'm a lifelong learner and I am, I believe that, you know, we are all, you know, relationships are so important and we are all walking each other home. Um, so it's important to be good to people. Nice. Very good. Very good. So did you, uh, were you born in Jamaica or did you, uh, were you born in Canada and grow up, uh, grow up here? I was born in Jamaica. Nice. Nice. And, yeah, and I came here when I was one and a half. So okay. 18 months. Nice. Very good. And, and where did you grow up in Canada? Were you, were you always residing in Toronto or did you move around the country before ultimately landing here? I grew up in a city called a place in Toronto called Rexdale. It's a quote unquote priority neighborhood. And it was like, quote unquote, dangerous, whatever, whatever they would call it. Um, and then my family moved to Brampton when I was like 15, 16 years old. Okay. So um, after having spent pretty much the earlier part of my life in community community housing my mom decided to purchase a house and so we moved out to brampton nice nice yeah and you finished high school there and then off to to college university uh what did you do after that you know what after that i actually stayed to going to school in toronto so i left in the middle of my high school career okay. to move to brampton and i just decided that i wanted to continue um, at the school I was at. And so, um, I commuted for two hours a day to go to school, um, at Topical School of the Arts wow. until I graduated, until I was finished. Yeah. Wow. Okay. How, how was that? How did, how were you able to, to handle that commute as well as, uh, it the pressures hard, of education? You know, like I, I, I remember being tired a lot and I skipped school a lot. <laughs> I don't even know you know, why I chose to remain there. Um, but I ultimately ended up, um, just, just fighting it out and just doing it. I, I didn't go to my graduation. I didn't end up, you know, going to my high school graduation, um, which kind of have regrets about that now, but I, you know, I made it happen. And then my whole life has just been about traveling and going to spaces that are like far in a sense distant and, and, and maneuvering. So I kind of got used to it. And, um, when I was about to go to university, McMaster, I made a decision to move to Hamilton for a year. So after being in Hamilton for a year, I realized I didn't like it. And I moved to Mississauga. I spent 
pretty much all of my early 20s in Mississauga. Um, and then I purchased property and I moved to downtown Toronto. Okay. Uh, let, let's back up a bit. You purchased <laughs> property uh, in your early 20s or throughout much of your 20s. Yeah. How did that come to be? Like, how did, how did you get into real estate investing um, at such an early age? Um, it was important for me for a long time, actually. I was, I was investigating real estate since I was 21 years old. I really wanted to get into um, real estate and as one, as an opportunity to create investment um, beyond, you know, savings and TFSAs and all that stuff. And so I just thought of it as a vehicle to build more wealth and to create um, longevity um, in terms of like my investment portfolio. So um, I actually got into it officially, officially like in my mid twenties and, you know, purchased a property that I didn't actually live in. I just decided to uh, have it. And um, I finally got into the condo life. um, And then I uh, recently got into, you know, out of state property in uh, the Caribbean. Mm. So like, I'm very much still learning. I wouldn't say I'm an expert, but I understand that it has created millionaires and, you know, looking at property valuation and all of these types of things, like my, um, property that I had purchased, I, maybe it was in the mid two hundreds, um, when I purchased it, uh, at first. And then it went up to like 500, 600,000 in years. So I really, really stress to people, if you don't have real estate, even if you don't live in it, um, you actually make more money when you don't live in the property. Right. So like multifamily dwellings, um, you know, just investment properties that you, you buy and you rent out. Um, those are really key to starting to build something. I always encourage people, like if you have, savings if you have money put aside nothing can accelerate your savings strategy more than real estate buy hold similar to stocks right get in and just start the process you don't live there you don't need to worry about you know you know everything like falling apart or whatnot if you buy it it's yours you have it and it's there and then as the rental market goes up the rent market goes up um the real estate market also somewhat goes up, but you're always winning when you're an owner and you're always paying when you're a renter. Mm -hmm. So which side do you want to be on? Right. Right. No, that's very good advice. And, and something that a lot of millennials um, and even young people who are teenagers really need to, to, to learn now is in terms of uh, their financial literacy education, these sort of avenues for, for wealth creation and wealth generation uh, within their families. So, so um, I'm going to ask a couple of questions. So you, you know, you, you went to an art school, um, graduated from there in high school, moved on to university to study political science, and you've done a whole bunch of things um, uh, throughout your career. Um, how do you feel that, you know, your arts background, your political science background um, really shaped the direction that you, you have uh, found yourself in, in terms of uh, starting businesses and, and getting in, in, into real estate investments and, um, ultimately, you know, landing your, yourself at, at Ivy, which is uh, one of the, the best business schools uh, in, in North America. Thank you for saying that. Oh, wow. Um, I believe that there is an element of creativity in all things. And with creativity comes, you know, an era of 
craziness sometimes, you know what I mean? And so I think what has really propelled me forward is um, I am relentless and I just, at times what people may deem as crazy or um, uncalculated or impulsive, uh, these are things that I, you know, take pride in, in experiencing. So um, real estate, that was something that I had talked to my dad about for years um, and my mother as well. And I knew that that was a strategic decision um, based on me working in the professional kind of healthcare world, saving up, not necessarily knowing that I wanted to kind of be on my own right away, but just knowing that I wanted to start the process, um, you know, wanting to open up different businesses and help support businesses because I believe in rooting for the underdog. I believe that, you know, things are created out of need. And if there's a problem, there'll be somebody to solve it. Why not be the first person to solve it and get the first, you know, opportunities to make the money um, that comes from solving that problem. And so I, that's, that's where that comes from. But the creativity being at the core of what I do, because I think innovation is, you know, paramount to the success of any business, any business that you see thriving or doing really well, um, they've pivoted, you know, they've innovated, they've, they've innovated, they've created, um, solutions to things, but when solutions are dried up or there's other people in the market that are, um, you know, taking up, you know, the audience, they pivot, they ship, they shape shift and they maneuver to kind of remain relevant. And I, so, and I, and I believe um, to my core that as a business person or a strategist, in order to remain relevant, you have to be creative at all times. And so I think my background in uh, going to an art school um, and being professionally trained pianist and uh, violist helped me because it, it groomed me to be very disciplined me to understand another language, which is the language of music, um, and groomed me to be able to communicate with people that were outside of my normal peer circle. And those skills I've taken into practice in my professional and um, entrepreneurial uh, endeavors. And so I see through this lens of um, not necessarily black and white, but I dream in color and I dream in like what things could be and what things you know, really want to be, you know, I tell myself, actually, I don't think they want to say no. I think they want to say yes, but not right now. So just always have it in the back of your mind that this is a potential. Yes. And so that's how I choose to live in color and choose to think, uh, through the lens of possibility and not, um, disappointment. Nice. No, that's good. And, and I can imagine that lens and that creative approach was very, very instrumental in getting Afro chic, off the ground. And, and you started this 10 years ago when, you know, the, the whole concept of Africa and, and African heritage was nowhere on the radar uh, in, in the GTA and in, anywhere in Canada. How did you come up with that idea? And what were some of the major challenges in getting it to this, to this point? And, and just for, for our listeners, right, AfroChic has, has hosted some amazing artists, including Erica Badu, uh, Issa Rae, Jadenna, um, a whole bunch of amazing artists um, in, in Canada, as well as, you know, the, the, the West African launch, which was in Ghana uh, last year. Th- I mean, that must have been a dream come true in terms of being able to do that 10 years on. Let, let, let's, let's learn about that story. What, what was that like, the challenges, the craziness around it? 
thank you. Oh my gosh. Afro chic is, you know, it's a, it's a beast. Afro chic is its own entity now. Like it exists outside of me. It exists outside of like anything I could have imagined. And it really was, um, it was really the, the baby, the, the creation of four black girls that went to an all white arts high school where we were really just alienated and we just formed a bond within each other. And so um, we stayed in touch after high school. And when we were, I was in university, um, one of our, our founding members was also in university and one was uh, in college and one was, you know, working in the banking industry. We just came together and we were like, we want to start a book club. So we created a book club called Knowledge is Freedom. And the focus was reading books about black womanhood and navigating the corporate world and navigating life. And then we started to go down this lens of um, personal development and, you know, appearance and uh, self-love and all of these things. And so how do, you know, they intersect? How does um, personal development and professional development and self-love um, intersect. And so we landed on this topic of hair and the natural hair experience for black women. 10 years ago, there were way less women rocking their natural hair or feeling comfortable um, in showing the hair that grew out of their scalp. Um, and so we wanted to, you know, talk about that as black women, as women with different hair textures and varying skin tones, what, um, you know, what was, what, what's important, um, for us, is it navigating, climbing to the top of the, um, corporate ladders? Is it getting married? Is it that? And does our appearance, um, have anything to do with it? And so we were in a time where, uh, Chris Rock had come out with this documentary called good hair. Mm. And we actually watched the documentary and we actually felt like it was a bit of, it was like poking fun at black women. It wasn't celebrating us in the manner that we wanted to. So we created Afro chic as sort of a response to this idea that you can't be beautiful and natural and, you know, brown skinned or dark skinned or light skinned and, and own your, your black womanhood. And that, you know, we could get together and congregate and create platforms to um, celebrate each other and recognize each other as, as well as support each other's businesses. So we started off with 50 people. It was um, a really small, cute event and it was on downtown Kings, uh, somewhere on King street. I can't remember the club name right now, but it was really small. Our parents were there. They were like cheering for us, like so proud of us and Oh my God, look at these little girls. And then, you know, the year after everyone left <laughs> <laughs> except for myself and one of the co-founders and you know it was just us two we started off with four it was just us two and we were like okay so what do we do like what like what are we gonna do and we made it a bigger event we incorporated arts we incorporated music we incorporated different outlets right and this time it was held at an art gallery and this time it was like probably like a hundred people and then as you know, the years went by, the second founding member decided to leave and start her own journey in the theater arts world, leaving me kind of by myself, but having to just re-strategize around what it could look like in another, um, in another format. Mm -hmm. So we went from, you know, 50 people all the way up to like, you know, 1500 people. 
and it remains a boutique experience, right? We're not, we're not creating an event for 5,000, 10,000 people. Right. We're creating a very niche specific event for people that are looking for a type of experience. And so I think we continuously produce that every year. And so that's why we've been able to, you know, carve out a really meaningful space and identity in a really diverse city like Toronto, because we are filling a need. We are filling a gap. Um, so the original founding members have now gone on to, you know, manage art centers, um, manage theater and production and, you know, be mothers and all of these things. And so I am kind of still running, you know, the engine of After Chic. However, I have like an incredible new team, both here and in West Africa, um, you know, curating content and developing experiences that, you know, really resonate with the black woman population as well as uh, men too. Right. Yeah. Um, we've been recently talking about a pivot in light of COVID and, you know, figuring out how to move our content into the digital space, but also doing something really cool that I don't I mean, by the time this podcast goes live, I think I can talk about it. So yeah. we've actually pivoted now to um, creating a subscription box so we can still continue to support the local black businesses and uh, diverse businesses overall um, across Canada in getting their products out in promoting what they have and letting, you know, subscribers and people from our audiences try their stuff out. So our, our product line is called Chic Essentials. Nice. Um, it really lends itself to this idea of, you know, what is an essential item? What do you really need every month? You know, what will make you feel chic? What will make you feel good? And it's just two tiered in that we really want to support our community, but we really want to also, um, you know, make sure that businesses are not going out of business right. that people still know, you know, we're still here. We exist. Um, they'll be featured on our website. They'll be featured on our social media and we'll have like a really good opportunity to give back in a way that we've never done before because, you know, now it doesn't require the labor of us throwing a big, you know, thousand people event. Now it's just being strategic about partnerships and relationships and listening to what our viewers want or our, our audience want and, you know, delivering on that. Right. Right. No, in that like a really compact way. Yeah. So that's been one of our pivots. And obviously now we're going to be transitioning to moving to a space where we're putting content out online as well. Now, it sounds like you're doing a whole lot with, with this, which is amazing. Um, so, so last year, last year you 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 had Afrochic in Ghana, yes. um, and and I know that was probably you know the highlight of your achievements uh, with Afro Afrochic, uh, getting it onto the continent, um, and you know in, in in following your progress, I know that it was not the easiest thing to pull off. Not at um, all. You know, <laughs> so, so what what were some of the challenges that you faced in in getting that off the ground, um, and how did you ultimately overcome them? Yeah. So I would say there's just, a, there were, it was as great as, it, uh, as great as an experience um, as it was, there's always going to be challenges when you're um, pivoting or transitioning something over to a whole other continent. We're not even talking like going to New York or Atlanta or even London. We're talking about going to two continents across. And so that was really um, that it really just came down to, um, 
making the right relationships and understanding, you know, our value and our purpose and what we were trying to accomplish, which was converge two communities, the African diasporas and the African continentals, and really just introduce these communities to each other in a very organic way that said, hey, we're here, we want to support, we want your support. How do we build these this bond um, without interference from, you know, our colonizers in a sense, like how do we build these relationships that exist in a long-term way um, across geographical boundaries, but, you know, we're still, you know, supporting our local businesses in Ghana and, you know, they're still talking to us and consulting with us on what they need. And so um, it was challenging in terms of finding funding because selling that conversation um, around the, the threat of uh, the 400 year uh, year of return. Yeah. That was a big celebration last year in Ghana. Um, it was, it was difficult talking to corporate around about that because they were like, well, how does that benefit us? Um, are there any people in the West African markets using our products or would there be any opportunities in the future? And so we had to do a lot of investigative work. Um, we had to really understand what markets, you know, made sense um, out there and kind of what type of technologies and, and, and business opportunities there were. Right. And so all of our partners in the past, they were like, okay, it doesn't work for us. Even though if you want to do Afro chic in Toronto, sure. But going to West Africa, how? So we had to have really different conversations. I had to fly to San Francisco and had a, and, and meet with ancestry DNA because ancestry Canada wouldn't talk to me. Wow. And so I just booked a flight and flew to ancestry DNA. I had a great friend um, who worked there and she, you know, made things happen behind the scenes, but, I really had to sell them on the diaspora continental connection and the potential for, you know, a bigger conversation um, with bringing more people of diaspora heritage back to, you know, the motherland. And so they really liked that. They were sold. We had to do the same thing with Google. We had to fly to London and have the conversation because Google Canada wasn't talking to us. Google UK, they were more willing because there's a huge population of West Africans in, um, you know, West uh, in London. And so, you know, the content was needed. And so they, they desired to see that type of creation take place and, 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 and live in that realm. So, um, it was challenging in terms of finding the money, in terms of building my team out there and, you know, holding like, space for, you know, error and, you know, different things that would come about. There were times when I was, you know, finessed, I don't know the right word, but <laughs> finessed or um, exploited and kind of taken advantage of. And there were also times where I was treated incredibly well, as well as people on my team. So I'm really grateful for that opportunity. And I would love to do it again. Actually, we had plans to do it again and bring down, um, you know, another group of, of, of Canadians. However, um, the circumstances that we're in now just shed light to the fact that it might be, you know, postponed until next year, but it was still, you know, an incredible opportunity and one that will forever, forever, ever be appreciated and valued. So through all of this, um, I'm sure you had some some key mentors, people that uh, were ultimately, you know, rooting for you. Um, who are who are some individuals that 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 you hold dear as mentors um, that have inspired you and and kept you motivated? Ooh, that is such a great question. I have quite a few amazing mentors. So Sheldon Pitts, aka Solitaire, he's um, a rapper that 
came up in Canada in the nineties. Um, he's, you know, around the same, um, timing as Cardinal official Julie Black. He's an incredible mentor of mine. He's saw something in me from, you know, the moment we met and he supported me. Um, Zamani Thomas, who's an entertainment attorney out in uh, Florida. He has been hugely instrumental to my success and just me as a person and helping to, you know, um, invest in me um, intellectually and, um, legally, like he's, he's been my, my attorney for the past three years now. And I, and I'm very grateful. Um, you know, you have the Claudette McGowan. She is incredible. Of course, like one of the leaders in the, in the entire city. Um, I have incredible people surrounding me. Like even my parents, like I consider my parents, my mentors unofficially because I run every single thing by my dad. I don't make any moves without my dad giving me his input. And even if it's bad and I don't want to listen to him, I still run things by him. Some of my best friends are my mentors, like my close, you know, girlfriends, like we share a sisterhood, um, of, of just so much support. Um, on the spiritual side, I have great mentors in women like Carlin Purcell, um, Mahini Smith, Jasmine Lee, Nicole Williams, Ladine Dockery. These are women that excel in finance and real estate and they do incredibly well with the whole business side of things. And they've been able to manage families and their businesses and love. Um, I have mentors in my head. Like, <laughs> yeah. We shout out to all of them. <laughs> um, you know, I love, um, of course, Michelle Obama. That is my girl. I love her so much. Yeah. Um, I love Elon Musk as, as problematic as he is. Um, I've read all his, his books or the books written about him. Um, and yeah, like there's, there's so many people that I would say are my official and unofficial mentors. And I just give thanks for everybody. Nice. Oh, been there for my journey this far. Yeah, that's good. It's good to have a great support network, uh, both with friends and, and individuals that believe in, in your potential and the ideas that you have. Um, a question I'll, I'll ask is, you know, have, have you experienced failure before and what was that like for you? How did you, how did you come back from a moment of failure? And, and, you know, you can, you can use any scenario, um, uh, that you want to share on, on this. I have failed so many times. I failed more than I've won. And I think, I think a failure as just L's that I have to get out my system. I feel like you have so many opportunities to, to lose and very few opportunities to win, but the wins feel better when it came with a lot of loss. And so I've learned to accept that failure is a part of my journey, but um, I almost see failure as a stepping stone towards winning. And every L is not a loss. It's a lesson. So there's always an opportunity to be better or to enhance myself through every failure. Um, a, ma- a major failure that I would say I experienced, um, wow, because I've taken such a pragmatic and different approach to failure now, I, I'm, I'm having a difficult time. I'd say a major failure that I have experienced was, um, yeah, I would say I recently, you know, was taken advantage of financially by someone. And, um, I, 
am currently in a lawsuit with uh, someone in a professional way. Um, it's, it's a professional lawsuit, of course. It's nothing personal or criminal. Um, well, then again, he is a criminal because it has to do with fraud. But um, I would say, you know, that experience taught me to really vet people and really just don't go off of conversation and your vibes with people and how credible they seem. Get receipts and always make sure that you have a backup and you always understand, you know, what information um, you're seeking and always understand the person's motives and agendas, because that's something that I've been learning a lot in leadership class in um, doing my MBA, Um, really assessing and understanding what the key drivers are for people in decision-making and um, strategy, like why people do the things they do. And so once you really get an understanding of that and you're really able to zero in and, you know, find that, motivator you're able to avoid a lot of things or you're able to tailor your tailor your um conversations with people or your ways of bringing them into your life through that lens because you have a clear glimpse of okay this person's motivated by income or revenue this person's motivated by social status this person's motivated by how others feel about them this person's motivated by how they're perceived um this person's motivated by family so then you can use that to your advantage to better understand how to drive something or how to you know leave a situation right and so that's what I learned um and that was my failure I'm now in a lawsuit and I now have to pay a lawyer all this money and I have to pay for all these things but you know I needed this lesson to learn to not trust everyone in business and kind of really be thoughtful about the relationships that I form nice nice that's good that's good um yeah, so I guess the the next question I'll ask is um how are you how are you giving back? You know, um there are uh people that of course would love the benefit of your experience and and hearing about them and learning from from you as well. So in what ways are you giving back? I, I think pitch better is one of those in a way. Uh but uh what else are you doing to to give back? That is such a hot spot question, hot seat question. <laughs> um, I would say, yeah, so Pitch Better is definitely one of the key ways that we're giving back, but I'm I'm also trying to understand this investment space a lot more. Um, ultimately, my dream, my wish, and I guess the more I say it out loud and you know make this negotiation with the universe, the more it will come to life. I would like to create an investment firm for women entrepreneurs. And I would love to invest in founders with really innovative world changing solutions. And I think pitch better is just the start of that. But I think my whole life has been a give back in a sense. Everything I've done has been for the community and has been to better the lives of people around me. So um, on a really micro level, um, like a very personal level, I mentor about three women right now. Um, they're, they're actually, one is the same age as me, but, uh, they're all actually younger than me and they all have, you know, different paths that they're on. But I think we're, we're just intrinsically linked by our desire to just be better people and be better individuals. And I think that is in a sense, my best, the best way I can give back right now, because I don't quite know, um, 
I'm still, I'm still trying to figure out, you know, what would be the best value that I can bring. Mm. Um, I'm still learning myself. I'm still learning my boundaries. I'm still learning, you know, my, um, my potential really and creating my potential. So that is what I would say. I'm also working on a partnership with a shelter with our, um, subscription box. So, you know, for every third box sold or something like that, we're able to donate the proceeds to, um, a homeless center right now dealing with, you know, the COVID epidemic, um, or pandemic, sorry. And so I'm really, I try to think about the best ways to kind of, couple passion with purpose and make sure that, you know, I, I remain balanced as an individual, but also like as a human being too. Um, and so, yeah, I think that's the way I'm giving back right now. I'm, I'm mentoring, I'm, you know, forming these, uh, charity partnerships with, um, shelters and, you know, communities. I'm working on this investment fund, um, and, understanding the investment space a bit more and, you know, doing the research. Oh my gosh, Aziz, I forgot to tell you about our big research project. Okay. <laughs> Let's um, hear it. That just helped me right now. So yeah. <laughs> so um, we recently launched a study called found her and we are going across Canada and collecting data, running a digital campaign to collect data around um, investment outcomes for startup founders who happen to be black women. Okay. And, uh, this is, this came about, um, as a result of last year, there was a huge fund that went out, um, through the federal government, uh, for diverse women founders. I think it was 300 women were awarded a hundred thousand dollars after a very detailed, um, grant application process. Um, unfortunately, Two of those 300 were black women. Um, and there was a lot of missed opportunities. Uh, our firm found in the sense of being able to give access to more uh, racialized women. Um, and so we, we formed a coalition, a group of um, researchers, PhDs, MBAs, and just really, you know, boss ass women going out and doing the research and, and profiling and getting data around black women business owners and understanding what their gaps are and what their needs are and why investment funding and, you know, opportunities like that missed so many, like why was the mark so missed and kind of what are some of the barriers that we're facing as entrepreneurs, but also what are, um, is there barriers to accessibility and information and even just knowing that these things exist, that the government and, um, you know, certain VCs and investment spaces could do to better leverage, you know, their resources to um, other communities to get access to. So that's what we're working on. And it's called founders. Um, We're meeting with, you know, VCs and uh, investment consultants now as we speak. And we have this great team of women. So um, that's another give back. Um, That is a lot of labor right now because nobody has ever done this type of research before. This has never been done on this level in the Canadian context. And so we're starting from ground zero. We have access to a lot of dope women entrepreneurs already by way of, you know, pitch better after she, how she hustles. Um, and just she, like incredible, uh, data that we've been able to get just off, you know, the rip of those relationships, but it is still a huge undertaking because, um, the Canadian government doesn't track 
race-based data. Yeah. So, you know, this is something that we're advocating for as well through, you know, the federal, federal uh, conversations. No, this is, uh, this is a fantastic and much needed um, endeavor that you guys are embarking on and and kudos to you for, for championing that for sure. Um, A final question. Um, Looking back, what would you say to your younger self um, or uh, a very young lady who was 15, 14, um, what advice would you give to that person? Don't be in a rush. Cool. Don't rush. Don't rush. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, honestly, don't be in a rush. I love the fact that I started my first business when I was like 12. I was making menus for restaurants. Nice. Um, in the, uh, Rexdale community where I grew up, like I used to make like graphic menus and then I formed my own modeling agency called the Genesis when I was 18. And my close friends were like my photographer and creative director and, you know, and then I just continuously like built stuff. And I'm happy that I did stuff, but I was always in this huge rush and I just don't know why. Now I look back and I'm like, where was I going? Mm. What was I in a rush to do? Because I actually enjoy moments of peace and calm now. But I, I also think that if I didn't rush, if I didn't hustle so hard, then I couldn't relax now. I couldn't be calm now because I would just be like, oh man, I don't have a house yet. Oh, I don't have this yet. Well, I have two. You know what I mean? I have, you know, my MBA that I'll have in a year. Um, I've had a world of experiences. I've traveled to 46 places last year um, for business. And it's only been, you know, 20 months of being an entrepreneur. And I've traveled and people pay me for my ideas and pay me to, you know, look at their business plan and invest time in their, in their, in their visions. Mm. So I kind of understand why I rushed, but I would say just take your time, breathe deeply, communicate, don't fight with your friends, ask questions, but don't rush. Brilliant. Very brilliant. Um, Amoya, thanks for joining us on this, this, this episode. I, I really appreciate these conversations. Uh, before we go, uh, we're just going to go do a little uh, rapid fire uh, session. Um, okay, rapid fire. Rapid fire. <laughs> yep. So I'm going to ask you just five questions. You're going to give me your best answers as quickly as you can. Um, and we'll start off with what book are you currently reading? I am reading Atomic Habits. That is a very great a book really by James Clear. Good book. Yeah. Yeah. I would definitely recommend everybody read Atomic Atomic Habits. Yep. Yeah. Yep. It is on my list. Um, what is your favorite productivity hack or tool? My favorite productivity hack is making my schedule the day before, the night before. Okay, cool. And what would you say is your favorite place to escape to? When it comes to travel or in my head? Anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> when it comes to travel, I love Miami. Nice. When right. it comes to uh, escape, um, escape was in my head. It's just turning on a really good playlist and telling myself I'm in West Africa somewhere. Nice. Awesome. Uh, who would you say is your biggest cheerleader or supporter? My mom and my dad. Awesome. Great. Thanks, mom and dad. 
And uh, last one, if money or resources were not an issue, what would you do? I would do exactly what I'm doing right now. I'm living a life of purpose and I'm fueled by my purpose right now. I would do every single thing I'm doing. Excellent. Excellent. Amoye, uh, thank you very much for joining us uh, uh, on the show. Um, you're truly inspirational. Definitely one of our folks that is designed and made to lead. And we wish you all the best in your studies and your future endeavors. We're going to be tracking as usual, and we'll be giving you shout outs and supporting you uh, along the way. So thank you very much. Thank you so much, Aziz, and thank you, Made to Lead, for this incredible platform for our community. Um, I'm looking forward to you know seeing what you have coming up. Awesome. Cheers. Take care. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Made to Lead. If you enjoyed what you heard, please subscribe on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts, and please share with others. Also take a moment to leave a review as well. This helps us improve and also get discovered by others. You can also support by following us on Twitter and Instagram at Made to Lead Show and by visiting our website, madetolead.co. If you would like to be featured or know an amazing person of African descent whose story would be inspirational to others, I'd love to hear from you. Visit our website, madetolead.co slash get featured and send us a note. As you continue on your own leadership journey, remember that if you don't spread your wings, you'll never know how high or how far you can fly. So stretch your feathers because you were made to lead. Mm-hmm.